Amen. Well, thanks uh, for doing that. That was fun. Um, someone, I won't name names, but someone was like, man, nobody knows hymns. Take that, take that. Uh, obviously, we sing a lot of hymns. We were actually talking about that. That some of the, uh, some of the uh, he, he said OGs, some of the OG hymns, I think are, you know, good, very good, you know? So we're, we, I know we've changed them a little bit, but it's, it's good to uh, sing. Um, I miss that. I, you know, I, I grew up singing in the choir and hymns, and so I miss being able to see the sheet music. I know not a lot of people were ever taught, you know, it's a language, really, and so now it's not like a super common thing, but anyways, I want to welcome you. So uh, we are right now currently in week uh, four, 13 of 14, even though it's 16 verses, uh, but we crammed uh, the first four into two weeks, and then we've been doing one at a time here, and so we are in week uh, 13 of 14, and so we will finish this series next week, and then we will kick off the new series after that. So this is where we've been, right? We, we, we've, every week, we've been looking at this slide and, and just going back, looking at the, the major storyline of the Bible, that, we're, that yes, we're zooming in on one specific thing, and yet looking at how this is all connected, that these aren't disjointed, random stories in the Bible, that they all mean something, and they all point to Jesus, of, of Jesus being there in creation, of, of Jesus becoming a human being, not necessarily Advent at that point, looking at human beings being created, uh, male and female, and Adam and Eve, and looking at the fall, and Genesis 3.15, this redemption that's promised, and then Abraham gets this promise, and Judah gets a promise, and this Passover lamb, and the law that comes from Moses uh, to the Israelites, and, and then King David is established, and his throne is going to be established forever, and yet the prophets are saying, no, there's going to be something different about the Messiah. He's not just going to be a normal king seated on his throne in, in Jerusalem, that he's going to suffer, he's going to die. Um, and that the redemption or resurrection is promised, that, that these bones are going to rise from the dead, um, that we see this fulfillment, that Jesus, in the fullness of time, uh, when everything was right, comes to this earth and dies on the cross, and then resurrection last week. This week, looking at justification. Um, and, and that's a, just a fancy word, what, kind of what, an easy way to think about justification uh, when we think about that word, is, is that where it's, it's as just as if I've never sinned. Justification, uh, that's what it means. That God, Jesus takes away our sins. Um, last night, uh, I don't know, there was, a, there was like a bag of uh, just some clothes on our bed. And, and I looked at it and I was like, what is, what is, what is, what this clothes? And Andrew was like, oh, her sister gave her it. And this was, this was in there. It's a t-shirt that says, sin is, sin is, sin and out. What? Sin is out. Uh, right, Jesus, instead of in and out burger, right, his sin is out, uh, which uh, if anyone wants this, you're more than welcome to uh, take it. Um, it's not, not really my type of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> promotion of, of Jesus. Uh, it is way too small. I would have worn it if it would have fit, okay? Uh, <laughs> but it didn't. I didn't even try to put it on. Uh, Anyways, if anyone wants it, it's yours. I think Nolan's hand went up, so it's yours. Um, but, that's, but that's justification. It's as simple as that, right? Sin is out, right? It's gone. It's just not, it's not there anymore. And so that's what we're going to be looking at. So let me read uh, the text uh, from, from Romans. Before I get I'll just read kind of the blurb here. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This, this verse, this is verse 23, Romans 3.23, that this is... Uh, uh, Martin Luther's favorite verse. In the entire Bible, he's like, this verse is the center of all scripture. 
not like numerically the center of the Bible, but just saying that this, everything hinges on this verse, not that verse, but the understanding of this verse. That the God who is just and holy, who cannot be around sin, who can't look on sin, where sinners can't even approach that God, he stays, he maintains his justice while being the justifier of forgiving people of their sin and taking their sin as far as the East is from the West. And so um, I kind of went back and forth on this, uh, but the title of this sermon is called The Fugitive. Uh, right, that a fugitive is somebody who's on the run from the law, somebody who's done something wrong and gets caught and then they, they run away and they try to get away from the person that, that they owe, right, the justice system. So I want to look a little bit about the, at that. I'm going to read Romans 3, 21 uh, uh, through 26 and maybe make a couple of pauses. But again, I'm not going to focus on this text because we're going to be preaching through Romans in the next year. Uh, and so this will be, we'll be in Romans three, probably April. Uh, and so I don't want to, I don't want to just really get into this text knowing that we're going to do it again, but, I, but it is really important. That's the main point of what we're trying to get to today. Uh, so I want to pull a couple things out and then we'll look at some other passages to clarify that position. So Romans three twenty one says this, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, right? So again, to people under the law, obey the Mosaic law, do this and live. But if you don't, consequences. And so the righteousness of God, his goodness, his purity is now being made known to everybody to which the law and the prophets testify. Moses and the prophets, another way to talk about the law, that they're all pointing, they're, they're saying something else is gonna come. There's gotta be someone greater, which has been the whole series looking to Jesus. This Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. It used to be by, by being part of the covenant people of God, of obeying the laws and believing and putting my faith in the promises of God, but those promises looked very different. And now these promises are simply faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. That's it. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, right? Somebody who was born and who's under the law and somebody who's not, it's all the same. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody, regardless of ethnicity or, or any kind of background, everything is the same. For all have sinned, everyone's guilty. And I'll add that we're all fugitives, that we're all running away from that God who's actively pursuing us. That's the story of the Bible. Then in Genesis chapter two, when we see the fall, or Genesis chapter three, and when we see the fall that Adam and Eve, well, the first thing they do is they go hide. They run and they hide, and it's God then who pursues. Where are you? That's the story of humanity. And all are justified. Justification, all are made pure and holy as if they've never sinned. Freely, how? I gotta do this thing, I gotta go to church, I gotta tithe, I gotta do these prayer requests, I gotta volunteer for this. Justified freely by his grace. The redemption that came by Christ Jesus through the Messiah. But God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement to the shedding of his blood, to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. This, this idea of forgiveness is, is a radical New Testament way of thinking about sin. In the Old Testament, we're given a lot of verses that say things like, he cleanses 
us from sin, or he washes us, that he pardons us, he covers the sins, he removes our transgressions. The only time it really talks about forgiveness is about future forgiveness in referring to the Messiah. In Isaiah 53, right, on him, the iniquity, the sin of us all is laid. But before this, it's just covered, it's just moved on, it's waiting for actual opportunity to forgive because on the day of atonement, even when a lamb would have been sacrificed, it covered the sins. It didn't forgive the sins. It was all an image, a demonstration, a shadow of Jesus who was gonna come and forgive sins because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Because we know, again, based on Romans, that the wages of sin, the payment of sin is death. And yet people weren't immediately struck down, right? Because there's forbearance. They went unpunished because ultimately Jesus would be the only one who could fully pay for the sins. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. I think it's verse 26. I think I said 23 earlier to be the just and justifier. So that's the text, except we're not gonna be looking at that text today, but thankfully there are a lot of texts in the Bible that share very similar understandings of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's start off here. We are all guilty. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. Whether you think you're a good person, whether you know you're a bad person, whatever it may be, you're falling short, that we're all guilty. So let's look at a, at another text here. I want to look at Colossians chapter two, and I've kind of split this one up, just focusing on the, on the guilt that every single one of us has. When you were dead in your sins, same language that we use in Ephesians, right? That you were, you were dead. You are 10,000 leagues under the sea. You aren't trying to tread water and keep your head above the water by yourself. You are dead. There's water in your lungs and it is Jesus who comes along and he breathes life into you that now you wake up. The King James uses this word quickened, made alive, right? There's that, I don't know, that phrase, the quick and the dead. That's what, if, that's what it's from. I'm made, I'm alive. You were dead and now you've been made alive. You're dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh. I mean, you weren't even trying to be a religious person. You were just completely lost. The charge of our legal indebtedness, right? Let's say, like Paul's using a legal term here that I did something wrong and I cannot pay for it. I can't pay for it by spending life in prison. I can't do it by, by an execution. I cannot pay for it. The charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, that we are found guilty, all of us, we are all found wanting. And so when I think of The Fugitive, I, I think of, of a movie, uh, The Fugitive, but that, I, I, I kind of went down a little rabbit hole, and I didn't know this. There was a TV show called The Fugitive uh, that was from the 60s, which then uh, inspired <clears throat> what a lot of us might know as The Fugitive, made in 93, uh, with Harrison Ford. Now, this is a really interesting, uh, if you haven't seen the movie, that's okay. I'd re recommend it. It's a great movie. It's in Chicago, great city. It's fun. Uh, and, but in this movie, it's a really, really intense movie where you have Harrison Ford, uh, Jim, Jimmy Kimmel, that's not his name, Kimmel, what's his name? Dr. Kimmel, uh, Richard, Dr. Richard Kimmel. Uh, and he is uh, accused of murdering his wife uh, and is a, the one-armed man, right? Maybe you've kind of heard that was like a, like a big thing in culture for a long time. Oh, the one-armed man must have done it, right? If something happened that you didn't want 
Uh, and, that was, and that was a phrase, right? So, so he's, he's accused of murdering his wife, but this guy does it. He wrestles with him, and then the U.S., and then he, gets, he escapes from this prison bus, and he's on the run. And then uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays the U.S. Marshal, who's now chasing Harrison Ford. And there's this iconic scene. Whether you remember this or not, it's okay. It doesn't really matter. But he's been running for his life, and he's in this tunnel, kind of like by a, by a dam, uh, and there's this huge, and he gets trapped. He's, he's either going to jump off the back of this dam, which is like a huge fall, uh, or he's going to turn himself in. And so the marshal, Tommy Lee Jones, is standing there, and he's got, a, got, his, got him at gunpoint, and he's like, hey, man, turn yourself in. Like, I'm, I'm right here. And Harrison Ford says, I didn't kill my wife. And then Tommy Lee Jones is standing there, and he says, I don't care, <laughs> Right? That's not my job. I am not the jury. I am not the judge. That already happened. You were, you were declared guilty, and it's my job to bring you in. So he, he just stands there. He says, I didn't do it. He says, I don't care, and he runs, because now you've been running from the law. You are guilty. And then he decides, and he dives off the, the dam and runs for the rest of the movie until he proves uh, in good Hollywood fashion that he was indeed innocent. Now, what I didn't know, and this was very interesting to me, this movie was based off a true story by this man, Sam Shepard, uh, 1954. Same exact story. Sam Shepard was accused of murdering his wife. Uh, he fought with an individual who got away. Uh, the jury found him guilty. He served 10 years in prison, and then it was retried, uh, and he won no problem that he was not guilty, and he was released from prison. What's interesting, though, about this man, Sam, was whether he was guilty or not, I don't know, because uh, he was obviously declared innocent, but then he immediately joined the uh, WWE at the time when his name was The Killer. That was, his, that was his wrestling name, was The Killer. Now, the difference between, like, The Fugitive, like Harrison Ford's character, or like Sam here, we are guilty, <laughs> Right, emphatically. There's no like, oh, did he do it? Maybe he didn't do it. Okay, maybe we'll watch the rest of the movie and discover if he actually did it or not. No, we're guilty. That's the whole point of Romans of what Colossians is trying to say is that you are guilty. You have been tried, but it's not just like, well, I know the jury says I'm guilty, but I'm actually innocent. No, 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 you're guilty. Because that might be you. That might be you saying, no, I know the Bible. I know the jury is out. The jury's saying, I am guilty, but I'm in the back of my mind. No, I'm actually okay. I'm actually a good person. You're not. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. There's a quote uh, by Tim Keller that uh, we've read quite frequently over the years, but just the first half of this, the gospel is this, the first half of the gospel is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care if you grew up in the church and you've got those hymns memorized the way I do at least the first and the second and fourth verse. We always skip the third verse for some reason. Those are for really spiritual people. Whatever it may be, right? You, I don't care who you are. You may have, this may be your first time in a church, not that the church matters. This might be your first time ever hearing the gospel of Jesus. You need to, we need, all need to understand that we're all equal at the foot of the cross and we're all guilty, every single one of us. And we're more sinful and flawed than we can ever begin to understand. We, we, I don't think we, we grasp the depth of our depravity and sinfulness. But that's where we once were, that we were all guilty. And so going back to that Colossians, 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 Colossians 
passage. passage. What is going on here, man? (laughs) God made you alive, right? He quickens you. God makes you alive with Christ, with the Messiah, with the promised anointed one. And he forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge, right? You're guilty. You're found guilty. You are guilty. And not just, I'm going to cancel the debt, like forgive you. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. It's gone. It's gone. And so therefore, I don't introduce myself to people as an angry Christian. This is my thing. Look how angry I am. I'm always angry, but I'm a Christian. No, it's gone. I don't identify as a sin. I don't do it. Now, I might struggle with that thing for sure. I'm not angry, right, babe? All right, let's move on. Let's let's look at this, though, again, this rest of this quote by Tim Kelly. Tim Kelly, what is going on? Tim Keller, got my names all weird today. Tim Kelly. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Right? That is such a beautiful gospel truth. My depravity is so deep that I can't even begin to comprehend it. And the love of Christ for me and for you is so vast, I can't comprehend it. I want to look at a passage of scripture. And if you've been coming to Hope Lower Town for any amount of time, this should be very familiar, uh, this story. But I want to set a little bit of the context. Uh, this is from Luke chapter 7. And we have Jesus going over to a Pharisee's house named Simon, uh, and he's going to be anointed with oil from a woman of of the city, a woman of the night, of a prostitute. And uh, and so this this was the best picture I could find that would depict kind of a uh, what was happening. uh, That we don't they're not sitting at a table the normal way that we would sit at a table. They would kind of lay on these things, kind of these Ottoman things that would be around the table, and they would kind of lean on one another, and then you can see on the left side there, this woman coming in, and you can see the Pharisees on the right side, right, whispering, talking amongst themselves of, I can't believe Jesus is allowing this to happen. So that's the context of what's happened. Let's read the story. When one of the Pharisees, who later on in the story we learn is Simon, invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That's that he laid down at his spot on the table. And a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. She came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Again, these are things happening here that, that Simon should have done. Simon should have greeted, should have welcomed Jesus, should have honored him as a guest. And culturally, they would either hug or embrace or kiss, and then they would anoint the uh, special guest with oil, um, and, and, and all that would happen. But that doesn't happen. This woman then does it. She comes in, she anoints him with oil, she lets her hair down, which was scandalous in that culture. Women didn't have their hair down in public. And she wets her hair down in this moment and wipes his feet with her tears. And so then Jesus says, when the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. And uh, he's not just saying she's a sinful woman. Sinner was a class. It was a classification for people, right? You had your, your plebeians and your, your peasants and your, all these, there were sinners, there were classes 
of somebody who is known for doing wrong. That's who she is. She's nothing but a sinner. Her livelihood is sin. And Jesus answered him. I love that Luke says answered him. Because Simon doesn't say anything. He's just thinking this. But you don't have to be a prophet and to be in a situation like that and go, "Mm, I wonder what they're thinking about this. You know exactly what's going on. But Jesus answers the question that Simon thinks in his head. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. Right, so this is happening. Jesus is reclining at the table. His feet are being washed by this woman with her hair and tears and, and, and oil and perfume. And he says, Simon, I got a question for you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had any money to pay him back. Here's the point. You got someone who owes a lot and someone who owes a little, they still owe. So I don't care where you're at on the, on the spectrum of like, am I guilty or am I not? Am I a good person or a bad person? You cannot pay it back. Can't do it. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned toward the woman. So he's looking at the woman, but he, he says to Simon, did you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Right? Against all the cultural things that, that should have happened with Jesus, didn't happen, and now this woman has done it. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. He doesn't excuse her sinfulness. He doesn't excuse her sinful lifestyle. Maybe she was put into a corner. Maybe she was a widow, had no way of taking care of her children. Whatever it may be, her sins that are many are forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been been forgiven little loves little. And I think that's those of us in the the church who have been part of this for a while. We get... We get used to the idea that Jesus has forgiven us of our sins. Like, yeah, I know, but I'm not really that bad of a sinner. So is it really that big of a deal? Yes, we cannot pay it. We don't begin to understand the depth of our depravity. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is interesting here, right? I want to focus in here on the idea that Jesus is forgiving. Right? Her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. Jesus specifically and explicitly says to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And again, culturally, growing up, and the Pharisees know this, people didn't talk like that. God doesn't talk like that in the Old Testament. It's always this forbearance, always a covering, always a a waiting. But now Jesus all of a sudden turns it on its head and says, you are forgiven of your sins. Let's put ourselves in this story. How is it that Jesus is able to forgive her of her sins if he's never even met her before? Right? What, what did this woman ever do to Jesus or wrong Jesus in order to allow him to forgive her? She hasn't wronged him. She may have wronged other people. This is the first time they've ever met. How is it that Jesus can forgive 
sins. In the 1998 movie, I know it's the second movie, but uh, you know it, it, it's culturally relevant because this was made in two movies from the 90s here. This is You've Got Mail. This is a very obscure reference here. You've Got Mail. Again, number two, you've got Jurassic Park, and you've got mail. Okay, watch them both. It's your homework this weekend. And You've Got Mail, you've got this woman, Kathleen Kelly, played by Meg Ryan, and then Frank. I don't remember his last name, played by the other guy. <laughs> I don't know his name. And what happens? They're in a movie theater, and they're watching, uh, watching something on the movie. We don't know what movie it is, but it's during the credits, or not the credits, the introduction, right? And the woman in front is like, Shh, you know, can you keep it down? And Frank's like, uh, a hot dog is singing. You need quiet while a hot dog is singing? Because uh, they're having a very serious conversation. And they keep having this serious conversation. Well, they started to get into politics, and, and Kathleen Kelly's like, well, I voted for so-and-so. Well, then Frank then says, it's okay, I forgive you. And then she has this line and she says, you forgive me, right? That's the line. You forgive me, why? Because she thinks she was the one who was wronged, not Frank. Frank, I didn't do anything wrong. I should be forgiving you. And he's like, oh no, it's okay, I forgive you, right? They both think that they've been wronged. And so Kathleen's character here, the Kathleen Keller character is saying, no, 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 I was wronged. Therefore, I'm the one who's supposed to forgive. Well, then how is it that Jesus can forgive? All right, we can only offer forgiveness to those who have actually wronged us. So I'll leave it up to C.S. Lewis to explain this better than I could. He says, one part of the claim tends to slip past us unnoticed because we have heard it so often that we no longer see what it amounts to. C.S. Lewis here is on the radio, the BBC, uh, back in the day, back in World War II, and he's just talking on a radio station during World War II, uh, and it ends up becoming one of the greatest apologetics ever written uh, in humanity, called uh, the, the Mere Christianity. And so he's given an apologetic for the case for Christ. How is it that Jesus is actually God? How do we get there? And so he goes to forgiveness as a proof. And he says, I mean the claim to forgive sins, any sins. Now, unless the speaker is God, this is really so preposterous as to be comic. We can all understand how a man forgives offenses against himself. You tread on my toes and I forgive you. You steal my money and I forgive you. But what should we make of a man himself unrobbed and untrodden on? who announced that he forgave you for treading on another man's toes and stealing another man's money. Asinine fatuity. <laughs> I had to Google those words. I know what asinine, uh, where'd it go? I've got it. Where's, the, where's it at? Extremely stupid, utter foolishness. Okay, that's, that's what it would be. Again, put yourself in that situation. Imagine that. Right? If, I, if I was walking by, and you, someone was walking the aisle, and another person was walking the aisle, and, and you bumped into each other, and one person spilled coffee all over themselves, and I said, hey, hey, don't, don't worry about it, I forgive you. Right? You would look at me like I was crazy. And that's what should happen when somebody forgives someone of their sins who was a, a, a non-member. But that's exactly what Jesus does. And so C.S. Lewis's point here is not, oh man, he was a good man. He was a good teacher. He forgave people of their sins. That's crazy. Unless he's God. All right, so, so what is it again? Extremely stupid, utterly foolishness is the kindest description we should give of his conduct. Yet, this is what Jesus did. 
He told people their sins were forgiven and never waited to consult all of the other people whom their sins had undoubtedly injured. He unhesitantly behaved as if he was the party chiefly concerned, the person chiefly offended in all offenses. This makes sense only if he really was the God whose laws were broken and whose love is wounded in every sin. In the mouth of any speaker who is not God, these words would imply what I can only regard as a silliness and conceit unrivaled by any other character in history. That there's no possibility that Jesus can be a good man, a moral teacher that we could follow when he's going around forgiving people their sins. That's crazy. Asinine fatuity, some would say. This is justification. This is exactly what justification is. I have sins that have been forgiven, sins that have been removed from me, right? And what's crazy even more so about this is that I personally have sins that have been forgiven by God where I might have other people who I sin against that still hold me accountable for that sin. That's justification. Last week I read this quote, and so I, I, I wanna go back to it. Just this last, last little thing, I'm not gonna read the whole thing kind of this personification of justice. Yes, says justice, I am well satisfied and even more content if possible than if the sinner had brought a spotless righteousness of his own. Why? Why is it even more welcoming that Jesus and more content that is Jesus who paid because he is the main party who was offended? He was the one who was offended and he was the one who offers forgiveness, therefore making him both just and the justifier removing all sin from me. And as the main party offended, he then pays for my penalty and he nails my sin to the cross himself. And he has been given all authority to forgive. Only he can fully, freely forgive. And so again, just in reading this passage, Colossians 2, 13 through 14, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So just two simple gospel applications this morning, and then we'll close with communion. Are you a fugitive? running from the forgiveness of God. And this could be a moment-by-moment -moment thing. This could be a daily thing. You might know, you know, I'm, I'm forgiven. I know I'm redeemed and yet constantly sinning, constantly becoming more aware of my sinfulness and saying, I'm not worthy. I can't approach God. Are we hiding? Are we running from God? From the forgiveness of God. 1 John 1, 9 talks and says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's interesting is that John, when he says that, he's writing to the church, that he's writing to people who have already been forgiven. He's writing to people who already believe the gospel. And he's saying, we still need to repent. This was number one on Martin Luther's 95 theses. The life of a Christian should always be one of repentance. I need to forgive. I need to repent, excuse me. I'm going to repent of my sins. And what the Bible tells us is that if I confess my sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive me of my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness.
But there might be those in here who have never been forgiven. And so you might feel like you're in a position with your sin that you're, you're, right, you're, you're, you're Richard Kimmel. And you're saying, I didn't kill my wife. And you feel like God is standing there saying, I don't care. You're guilty. But what we do know is this side of the gospel is that we are guilty and we can say, I did do it. And instead of Jesus saying, I don't care, he says, I know. I forgive you. We don't need to run away from God. We can run toward God. I didn't do it. I know. And then finally, your sins are forgiven by the one who was most wrong. I think that, again, man, it, I, I read just right now, read, I read that statement. Your sins are forgiven by the one who was most wrong. And I just say it because I've been saying that my whole life. And I need to put myself into that position, right? Of being the sinful person who's at the feet of Jesus begging for mercy. And even though my sins have been against other people and other wrongs that I've done, that he's the only one who can offer me true full forgiveness because he was the one that was most wronged. We're gonna enter into a time of communion that we do every week here at Hope. And so we have the wafer that represents the body of Christ that was broken for us, the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us. And all I would ask is that you're a follower of Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. I would love for you to partake of these elements with us as a family, as a church, as the bride of Christ. And we'll grab these elements and feel free to take a seat and, and pray and sing, repent, Go to Jesus. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Uh, and then again, just a reminder, the baskets are up here with the, for the cards, the prayer requests. Do you have something you want to be prayed about? Feel free to bring that up here and turn it into the baskets that are up on the front tables. Let me go ahead and pray. And then Angela's just going to play the piano on a couple more songs, uh, hymns this morning. And then um, uh, when it's, I feel like enough time has uh, passed and I'll come back up and close this prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have been justified, uh, that you are the one who was wronged. Uh, you are the one who is deeply hurt, deeply wronged in a way that we can't even begin to fathom. And yet you are also the one who in an unfathomable way loves us back, that you freely offer forgiveness. And going back to that passage in Romans, that it is by grace and faith that we can believe in the finished work of your son that we are forgiven fully, completely on the cross. And so would we stop running? Those of us in this room who feel like we've been shouting and screaming to you, like I'm not, I'm not guilty. Would you allow your spirit to open our hearts and point out our guilt and point out how we are wrong? And then at the same time, would your grace and mercy just pour out on us and know that we are loved and that we are able to be forgiven because you've done it. You've finished it. You're both just and justifier. So God, I just pray now as we partake of these elements that you'd be honored and glorified and uh, now you would just um, look at us with the compassion that we would see you as a father who loves us, who only wants us to come running back to you knowing that we've been forgiven by the father. We love you, praise you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.